God, we acknowledge just your faithfulness and your goodness this morning. And we think about, we think back on our lives and uh, we think about those moments. We got to move past just intellectual knowledge of, oh yeah, I know, I, I know God is my heavenly father. I know Jesus is a friend who sticks closer than, than a brother. We, we go back to those moments in our life where we needed a father and you were there. We needed that friend and you were there. And God, you have been so good. Our lives haven't necessarily been perfect. They haven't been good all the time, but God, you have been good. And we have circumstances going on right now that are not so good. And we don't even know the answers why, but we thank you, Jesus, that you promise that there is no suffering or pain that is wasted. And that all of these things, you will work them together for good to accomplish the building and growth of your kingdom and your family. And not only that, but also for us personally, just to know you deeper. And so in faith this morning, we just look at the circumstances of our life and of our world. And we say, death, where is your victory? Grave, where is your sting? Because Jesus has overcome. We don't want those just to be cheap words this morning, Jesus, but we want to enter into that reality. Even as we enter into your word, we want to reject fear and anxiety and see that that you have been pursuing us every day of our life. And even this morning, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would pursue our hearts again through your word, by your Holy Spirit, that we would be changed from the inside out, that we would have an encounter with you this morning that's deeper than just our intellect and just mentally assenting to, yeah, I think that is true, but actually deep in our hearts, encountering you in a, in a real relational way. We, that's what we want, Lord. And so we thank you that your gospel is not a matter of talk, but of power. And we just invite you and ask you to move in power this morning by your spirit and through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, please have a seat. We're gonna dive in. <clears throat> Full disclosure, I went over last service. I'm going to do my best to not do it this service. Um, but man, it's tough. It's tough in Revelation. There's so much stuff. There's so many details, so many things to explain and not nearly enough time. And so again, if I could point you to our podcast called Behind the Sermon, um, it's available anywhere you would get your podcast or on YouTube if you want to see our faces, which you probably get enough of that. So just audio might be fine. But <clears throat> Um, but, uh, this week, you know, anything that there, there probably are many questions that you may have on the back end of this. We have actually a place on our website. You can go and ask specific questions that you have as we go through the book of Revelation and we will, uh, come around and answer those to the best of our ability. Um, and so just, just want you to know that up front. But so we had, um, a bit of a problem at our house a little while ago. See, my oldest daughter, Eden, loves to do crafts. And one of the things that she often needs for her crafts is a pair of scissors. That's great, except when she's doing it unsupervised. And often, so her and then my younger son, Seth, who, you know, Eden is always the one with the plan and the agenda. And Seth is the one that just, he just wants to hang out. And he just wants to have fun. He doesn't care what we're doing. It just needs to be fun. 
So he, both of them would go along. They're running around the house with scissors, cutting stuff, and thankfully not usually themselves. But I, we talked through that many times. It's like, Eden, you cannot use scissors without mom and dad there. We had that conversation many times. And so sometimes as a parent, you need to change your approach, you know, trying to engage with her intellectually, like, okay, this, don't do this. Like just trying to spell it out real black and white. Don't do this. And um, so what I did was I told her a story. I said, Eden, when I was young, we had a, we had a, a family, family friends and two of their kids, they were pretty young, probably five and two or something like that. Real similar to Eden and Seth's ages. They were going to, uh, they wanted, they both wanted Tootsie Rolls, but there was only one Tootsie Roll. So the good old big brother, five-year-old about takes a pair of scissors and starts cutting the Tootsie Roll. And his sister, her, his sister can't wait and reaches for the Tootsie Roll mid-cut and snip, there goes her finger. Like, like a good chunk, not just like beep, but like, bah, like amputate, like big one. And, uh, so I told Eden that story and I wasn't like crazy graphic about it, but sometimes to, uh, for somebody to have wisdom, sometimes the way that we actually receive wisdom about how life works is through story. The reason I told her that story and the specific way I told her that story was not, you know, I didn't say, Eden, if you use scissors without mom and dad there, the, the, boogeyman scissor man is going to come in the middle of the night and cut your toes off. You know, like I'm not trying to freak her out about scissors. I'm not trying to make her feel afraid for her life. I'm just trying to help her with a story, engage with the reality of life. Now, oftentimes we want things just to be black and white, but it doesn't always sink in the same way, does it? We can know intellectually something is true, but then Sometimes it actually takes a story for us to engage with the reality of how things are. I can tell her, Eden, don't use scissors unsupervised. And that she might understand the words that I'm saying. But when I say, you know, this is what can happen if you're not careful with scissors, that sinks in a little differently. And I, that's the feel that I get as we've been going through Revelation. We get a lot of pretty incredible imagery and story about what is going on and what has been going on and what will happen, especially in the spiritual realm. And it, so it's, it's highlighting, God is highlighting all of these things for us. And ultimately, what is he trying to do? He's trying to develop discernment and wisdom and perseverance in his children. And so, I want us to take that approach because sometimes when we come to Revelation, we try to take this and make it super black and white. And it's, that's not really what it's supposed to be. See, because sometimes we get gr too grown up. And see, if, if, if I had told Eden that, that story and she goes, okay, yeah, I get that. But what is like the pounds per square inch you need to press to actually cut somebody's finger off? It's like, okay, we kind of just missed the point. Because the point is that these are tools that you can use in your life. It's great. And it's great. You can make a beautiful craft with scissors. You can also make a horrendous mess and destroy part of yourself or somebody else. And I think these are some of the warnings that we get today as we look into this passage. And so let's take that lens. Let's jump in. Chapter 12, starting in verse 1, it says, A great sign appeared in heaven. 
A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in labor and agony as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. There's a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on its heads were seven crowns. Its tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she did give birth, it might devour her child. When she gave birth to a son, a male who was going to rule all nations with an iron rod, her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness where... <clears throat> where she had a uh, place prepared by God to be nourished there for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels also fought, but he could not prevail. There was no place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was thrown out. The ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they did not love their lives to the point of death. Therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and, to the, and the sea because the devil has come down to you with great fury because he knows his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he persecuted the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she could fly from the serpent's presence to her place in the wilderness where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time. From his mouth, the, serpent's, the serpent spewed water like a river flowing after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth helped the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the river that the dragon had spewed from his mouth. So the dragon was furious with the woman, went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. So those who keep the commands of God, uh, or sorry, those who keep the commands of God and her, her hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. All right, so a lot of stuff there. And again, it's very visual. This is a story. And again, story does not mean fake. Story does not mean untrue. Story just means it's trying to evoke something deeper than just a mental exercise. It's trying to engage with us on a deeper level. That's why humans, like we really, when you think about the way that we think about and contextualize life, it is in the form of stories. If somebody, if you, if you make an assertion about how does life work, likely there is a story connected to something that you believe for better or worse. Whether it's a true belief or a false belief, there's a story connected to the way that you perceive life. And this story, this cosmic, incredible, true story is trying to help us engage with the realities of what is going on in the world and how things work, how things have gone down, what's going on right now. So we see a few characters, and again, going to try to take these real briefly, not, not enough time to go super in-depth, but we, first we see this woman, and so who does this woman represent? So there's, um, just in general, this woman really represents the heavenly family of God. What does that mean? Well, in one sense, it represents Israel. Because Jesus or God promised to Abraham that through his offspring, through his, 
uh, his lineage, that the entire world would be blessed. And we even see that connection um, in uh, Joseph's dream. If you know Joseph from the Old Testament, he, has, he had a couple dreams that he shared with his brothers and it made them very mad. But one of his dreams was about the sun and the moon and stars kind of like bowing down. So it's got this Israel connection and you even see that playing out kind of in the narrative. But also you see it, it, it also represents the church. So how does that work? Well, you kind of see on the front end, this woman, it's talked about how she is somebody who is, is um, kind of clothed with um, glory that comes from God. And she uh, is in the pains of childbirth. And it just fits very well with the narrative of scripture that that would be the nation of Israel. That ultimately through the nation of Israel, that they are kept through a lot of, a lot of ups and even more downs that they've, they were, you know, attacked and sent into exile and all this stuff. And through all of these difficulties, good kings, bad kings, etc., all these difficulties, God kept them as a nation so that at the proper time, Jesus would be born through that nation. And so <clears throat> you see that, but also you see this reality of this woman continues as now the church, the, the heavenly family of God. And that still exists and is keeping, kept safe through all of the attacks of Satan and the devil. And so there's the, there's the heavenly family of God. It's the reality that, that is being portrayed here through this woman. Because she is kind of, in, in one sense, she is untouchable. There's this untouchable reality to her existence. And she's kept safe by God. And at the same time, you see that um, it talks about her offspring that the devil can still attack her offspring. So a good way of understanding this is that there is a heaven reality of God's family. And it's a lot of things, again, that are, that are straightforward. Scripture talks about that we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places, things like that. But at the same time, we ha there's a reality of being on this earth still. And that as individuals, we still can experience difficulty, suffering, persecution, etc. And so uh, we see this woman as a character that represents the family of God. And, um, and then also we see the, this child who is pretty obviously King Jesus. Now, it, and, it, and it's interesting that here in Revelation, we almost get the Christmas story from a different lens. And it's just condensed. You know, it's like it talks about Jesus that he was born and then he ascended. That's kind of how it condenses that. But thankfully we see a lot more in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But uh, this, is the, this is really the gospel is that Jesus came as king. Satan wanted to take him out, but actually through killing him, Jesus accomplished his victory over Satan. So really all of this is kind of a big, uh, and, and, and honestly, all of Revelation is just in one sense, a lot of trash talk at Satan that he cannot win. He, he, there's nothing that he can do that is ultimate, ultimately successful. Everything he tries only, only lends to uh, make Jesus succeed that much more. And so Jesus conquered death by dying and now is seated uh, on his throne and he rules forever. So that's just to give a quick explanation of those characters. The main focus today, though, um, is going to be on the dragon and then these two beasts that we will see in the, the following chapter that we'll read about in a moment. But they really kind of create this unholy trinity of the devil's tactics in the way that he works 
in the world. And so Revelation is giving us a spotlight on that. And again, just like I did with Eden, telling her a story to be careful. This is also the same thing um, here for us is be careful of the dragon's tactics. Um, <clears throat> so the dragon is, is also, um, it, it's pretty obvious here because it's, it's kind of spelled out for us. It talks about this, this red dragon, but then it says specifically like, it's Satan. It's the devil. It's that, that serpent. So we should think back to Genesis chapter 3 where Adam and Eve are deceived by the serpent. And really, ultimately, for Satan, his kind of catchphrase, and I've assigned like a catchphrase to each of these uh, characters, um, but his is, you can be God. It was sort of the initial temptation that he gave to Adam and Eve. Um, and it's the one that continues on to this day. All of his temptation is essentially revolving around this same idea. See, Satan is not creative. He's deceptive, but he's not creative. He can take things that God has created, real truth that God said is, you know, reality that God says is real and true. And he could take that and he could twist it, but he can't come up with anything really new or original on his own. This is just a twist of truth. So what he did when he comes to Adam and Eve, hey, what did God say? Did God really say you can't eat of any fruit in the garden? That sounds really bad. They're like, no, he's just said we can't have this one tree. Oh, well, you know why he said that? He's holding out on you. He's holding out on you. He just knows that if you eat it, you'll all of a sudden become smarter than him. And now you'll be able to decide what is true for you, what is right and wrong. And that is the initial temptation. And man, we face that every day today. That God says, this is what's best for your life. And you're like, I don't know. See, this is, this is Satan's kind of, uh, it's, it's just been his catchphrase or his tactic for all of time. He comes usually in the guise of kindness as an angel of light. It's like, hey, I actually, I've got a secret path that you don't know about. And it's way better than this. And he promises good. He comes in the guise of kindness and I think even the guise of liberation. I can set you free. Isn't it annoying that God has put all these restrictions on you? You can't eat from any of this fruit. I'm like, yeah, you know what? It is kind of like that. Just this one tree. I know it's just one tree, but it is almost like everything. It's almost like he said no to everything. And, you know, and you can feel this building up and we've experienced that in our own lives. We've, we, we know about what God you know, asks of us or even commands of us. And we're like, oh, that's so restrictive. I don't know that. I think I could figure out a better way. And it's, it's just the same thing that Satan has been telling us from the whole time. But it ultimately, what he doesn't say is the liberation that we gain is liberation from the source of life. You don't have to be alive anymore. It's like somebody coming up to you when you're scuba diving and being like, in translation is, you could take that mask off your face. Isn't that annoying that you need this tank on your back to breathe? Oh, it's such a bummer. You, could, you know, I think you could do better for yourself. I think if you really try, you could breathe underwater. Try it out. It's, it's the same type of deception when you follow it through to its logical conclusion, you see that it's actually terrible. 
He's like, you won't actually die. You're going to eat that fruit. You're not going to keel over and die. Well, no, maybe not in the moment, but the death they experienced was far more tragic than that. And we still experience this every day. See, his main goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. He just wants to take and bring destruction and death. And that's what he loves to do. So this, that, that's his plan. And so in, in his attempt to make his plan come to fruition, he brings these two helpers. So let's continue on. Uh, jumping back in, the last verse of chapter 12, verse 18, it says, The dragon stood on the sand of the sea. It says, I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads. On its horns were ten crowns, and on its, head, uh, on its heads were blasphemous names. The beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. The dragon gave the beast his power, his throne, and great authority. One of its heads appeared to be fatally wounded, but its fatal wound was healed. The whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter boasts and blasphemies. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It began to speak blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name and his dwelling, those who dwell in heaven. And it was permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them. It was also given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Those who live on the earth will worship it. And everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the lamb, book of life of the lamb who was slaughtered. If anyone has ears to hear, let him listen. If anyone is to be taken captive into captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword, he will be killed. This calls for endurance and faithfulness from the saints. So this first beast we see, this beast from the sea, Really, it is a personification or imagery that really stands for political systems. And, uh, you know, we'll dive into what that means. I use the word political very, very generally. But ultimately, the the catchphrase or the, the deception of the sea beast is, this is real power. This is how you get things done. This is how the world works. If you want to change the world... This is how you do it. That's the deception of the, of the sea beast. See, the description of this beast really echoes very, uh, very closely the vision that Daniel has in Daniel chapter 7, where he sees these different beasts that all personify, uh, you know, earthly kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, etc. And so it's kind of a Frankenstein's monster of all of these things. And so as you think about the Old Testament, you're like, oh, that's like Daniel, but a little different. It's like all these individual kingdoms that are all just kind of lumped and squished into one nasty looking thing. And so really, it's just a general personification of all political systems. And so when I use the word political, I'm not talking only about, you know, big G governments, although that is a huge part of it. And I think that's the main forward facing part of this, like what I would call macro politics, but also it takes place in workplaces, in churches, in families, anywhere where there's a system of authority that could be abused for personal gain. Anywhere where authority and power and personal comfort can be treasured above, you know, serving and uh, 
sacrificially loving those who you have authority over, as is Jesus's way. See, the way of the dragon is the way of power taken by force. The way of Jesus is power given by God and exercised on the behalf of others through sacrificial love. So, As we talk about this, I just want us to have some nuanced thinking as we think about politics, because it is like a pair of scissors. It can be used for good. It also can cause a lot of damage. Unfortunately, most people, when it comes to politics, they run around like this with the scissors. And even even well-meaning people are using the scissors in very destructive ways because they don't have wisdom. And so I want us to be nuanced when we think about politics. I also want us to be extremely humble and careful about pointing the finger because the book of Revelation is not about pointing any fingers. It begins with a letter to churches and it continues as a letter to churches. This is to us and about us to gain wisdom on how do we exist in the world. What does it mean to be the people of God in the world? So when we talk about, you know, politics and just, again, I'm going to use these words a little interchangeably, but kind of political or systems of authority, they're they're not inherently evil, but there is a pull There's a gravitational pull because of this beast and because of the influence that Satan and his uh, evil spiritual beings that follow him have on our reality. There is a gravitational pull towards operating in systems of authority in a beastly kind of way. And we see this the more macro these systems tend to become, the more there is just kind of like this tide of evil that almost feels completely unavoidable. That you might have, you know, a hundred well-meaning people that make up this particular governing body, but some, for some reason, they all get together and they start trying to make decisions and now people are getting hurt. There's injustice. There's, and so it's like, it just becomes very complicated. One of the things that we're supposed to see in the book of Revelation is that only Jesus is qualified to exercise this kind of authority in a perfect way. That any kind of human authority ultimately fails. There is no perfect human authority. No matter how, you know, certainly there are better systems than others as far as like the outcomes for people and stuff like that. We certainly do see that. But at the same time, there is no ultimate hope that can be found in human systems of authority. So again, we, we tend to, when we think about politics, think about big G government, especially we think about our government. But it can also be like parents and children. The way that their authority and power is exercised in their family. Some parents use their authority to, for, for their own personal gain. They operate with their children in a way that is, a, that is p- primarily selfish and self-centered. And so their children don't have parents, they have dictators. <laughs> their parents aren't, aren't exercising authority, they're exercising a beastly kind of power over their lives. We see the same thing in workplaces with bosses or 
in, you know, anywhere where there's any kind of system of authority. So let's keep a nuanced view that, that authority and power can be used for good. As Jesus said to his disciples, he said, hey, you guys will have leadership. You will have authority. You will have power of a certain kind with people. You're not going to use that like the world does to lord it over people. You're going to use that like I use my power to serve, to give sacrificially and to love. But we see it all the time that power almost always, like there's very few instances where power doesn't end up corrupting someone in some way. The more power people gain, and again, this can be presidents or pastors, (laughs) power corrupts people. And so, um, one of the, and that's one of the things you see kind of in visual form on this beast, that it has these 10 horns that kind of represent this control and power. And ultimately, this power, when people have these positions of power, governments have power over people, often those with authority will turn to violence and abuse and different methods of coercion to maintain or grow their influence and their power. So people tend to fear and worship this beast, this personification of just governments and systems of authority. And, it, and it's almost a picture of basically just universal. Like that is everybody's, everybody's hope is in that. And it kind of has the caveat, except those who worship Jesus. There's kind of one or the other. If your hope in this life isn't Jesus, then your hope has to be man-made systems of authority. That they're the only options. So you're worshiping Jesus, you're trusting in him, or you're trusting in people and their systems of authority. It also has seven heads. So it kind of gives a picture of there's, there's different facets, almost in a sense, multiple personalities or just different um, personifications of the same general thing. Like different, so this could be, you know, it, it could, you know, signify different leaders, even different things. So like, you know, democracies or dictatorships, large countries, small little tribes, this leader, that leader. Ultimately, it's all connected to the same thing and it comes from the same place. All of these different methods of, uh, of political power ultimately have this tug to become beastly. We also see that there is, it's just covered in this idea of blasphemy. And blasphemy is basically anything other than God saying, I'm God. And it was one of the things that Jesus did that made uh, the Pharisees want to kill him. And so, um, sorry. And oh, and so the, the, you see that there's ultimately um, this idea that I am I am in control. I am God. I'm the one that actually gets things done. And so on whatever level that looks like, it's, it's a, a pursuit of power that leads to whatever ends that you ultimately want. So what we also see is that one of the heads is wounded, but it doesn't die. It still lives. And it really is. I, 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 think, it's a, I think it's a perfect picture of what we've seen played, over, played out over and over and over throughout history. How it's like, we fight this war. We overthrow this leader. We overthrow this political system. Sweet, we have the new good one. And then the new one has the same or different but similar problems as the old one. And people will give their lives 
worship. They will give their lives for the sake of a political system that they have put their hope in. And ultimately, what does it lead to? Just another political system that may be run a little differently, but has all of the same kind of roots as the one before it. Now, again, we have to have nuanced thought because sometimes change is for the better, okay? But ultimately, when our hope is in political systems, we are worshiping something other than Jesus. And our motivation for this worship is not, is not love. It always is motivated by fear. This is always how political systems motivate people to get on board because there's the fear of what might be in the future. If this doesn't happen, if this person doesn't get in power, if, this, if we don't dethrone this person, if what, et cetera, if we don't do this thing politically, then our kids fill in the blank. Then you will fill in the blank. Then your life will not be the same and in these myriad of ways and things will be so much worse. And so it's motivated by fear. And when we feel afraid, we are willing to do violence. That we will participate. The, the method of control ultimately breaks down when it comes to the sea beast. The method of control ultimately is violence. And it's a very effective means of control. See, this beast deceives people to fear and then it deceives them to use the beast's tactics to continue to try to, to just like exist in the world. So often this violence can be specifically physical harm and, you know, governments can wield that kind of power over people, kill people, throw people in jail. But it can also, it can also just be kind of a general social or economic impact. Um, and we see that even in the letters to the churches as they're talking to these churches, um, about the things that they're experiencing. Sometimes it's people being thrown into jail. Sometimes it's just being um, unable to kind of participate in trade and business and things like that. Um, but <clears throat> ultimately what the beast's deception is, is, hey, do you want to, don't, don't you hate all this injustice? You know how you're going to beat it? Violence. You know how you're going to beat this? By, by totally owning that other group of people. That'll, that'll get you what you want. And that's the promise and the deception of this beast. So I think it's far easier to think about this as a reality. I think a lot of times the interpretive lens that we take to Revelation is too quick to think of this as an external reality, as something that will happen someday that will happen to the church. And we're kind of like, oh, yep, now it's happening. It's like, no, this is also supposed to be present for us right now. And see, what are the ways that we have not only, not only do we see this today, but what are ways that we have been complicit in participating? And so let's continue because I think this takes it even to a deeper level as we see the second beast. So we see the sea beast as kind of political powers. And <clears throat> now we see in uh, verse 11, chapter 13, we'll see the next beast. It says, then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all authority uh, of the first beast on, it, on its behalf and compels the earth and those who live on it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. 
It also performs great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in front of people. It deceives those who live on the earth because of the signs that it is permitted to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who live on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. It was permitted to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could both speak and uh, and cause whoever would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And it makes everyone small and great, rich and poor, free and slave to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, the beast's name or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast because it is the number of a person. The number is 666. So right there at the end, the number of the beast, the mark of the beast, it's like one of the most prominent features of the book of Revelation. I'm going to try to get us there before we run out of time, but if I don't, uh, we'll definitely talk about it on the podcast a little more in depth. But I want to, because I think unless we understand this beast, we don't really understand what its mark is. And so the, the land beast really ultimately represents propaganda that leads to religious devotion to political systems. I know this is a bit of a mouthful, but propaganda that leads to religious devotion to political systems. And the deception is, or the, the, the catchphrase is comfort is the goal. Comfort is the goal. And man, that is a deception that I think speaks directly to the, to the sinful human desire. That's, I just want my life to be easy. I want my life to be good. And this second beast says, hey, you know how you do that? You worship the first beast. You want to actually make things change in the world? Got to play the game. You got to participate in this system. Yeah, I know there's, yeah, yeah, there's some gross stuff, but this is, this is just how it works. This is how the world works. So if you want real power, If you want to see real change in the world, this is how you do it. It's propaganda that says this person, this system, this country, this whatever, you fill in the blank, will lead you to the life that you dream of. And it just never works like that, does it? It's a deception. It's not true. Now, just like Satan appears as an angel of light, we even see um, earlier as we saw the, the, the horsemen coming in that Satan was kind of disguised as like a Jesus type figure, right? Because he can't make this stuff up on his own. He's like, I don't know, he's doing that. So I'll just try to do something kind of like that. He, we see this beast have these lamb features, like these lamb horns. And again, it's a blasphemy against Jesus, Just like the first beast kind of mimics the death and resurrection of Jesus, that it's like, I'm an unkillable force. You will always have politics. You'll always have systems of government and you'll always have this political power. So you better play the game. This this beast also um, looks like a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon. And I think oftentimes, unfortunately, it, it, it seems to me that the church gets caught up in this, they look at the lamb likeness, but they don't know that the voice is different. See, what Jesus says is, my sheep will know my voice. A voice of the stranger, they won't follow because it doesn't make sense to them. If somebody comes to you and like, hey, do you want, do you know what would make your life more comfortable? You're like, 
hold on, that already doesn't make any sense to me. Why would I want that? See, that's what Jesus' sheep know, is that my life is not about my, what I want, getting what I want. God doesn't exist to give me what I want. My life is about having a real relationship with Jesus that goes on for eternity. That's what my life is about. Like Paul said, everything else in his life that he thought was cool and good about him, he's like, that is all absolute garbage. It's like the closest thing we have to a swear word in the Bible. That's like, that is all absolute garbage compared to knowing Christ. So when we see the allure, and what it does is it allures people to make an image, a idol of this first beast, to basically begin to give life and embody what this first beast does. And so oftentimes in the church, and, and again, just in so many different ways, you look throughout history, I mean, a very in-your-face one is like the Crusades. Like pretty much everybody can, can be like, wow, that was horrible. And that is 100%. That is not the church. That is Satan. You can't just slap a Jesus bumper sticker on something and say, oh, this is Jesus stuff. No, it's the way of the dragon. And this is what Revelation is, or what God is warning us of in the book of Revelation, that we as a church have to be extremely careful. See, here in America, it's extreme. Politics is complicated. For this early church, it was also complicated. It's not more complicated with, than what they experienced, but they were under, you know, the rule of Rome. And it was a certain kind of democracy, but also there was kind of just like the emperor. And the emperor could kind of, in some ways, do whatever they want. And you kind of just, it was, you, you, that was it. So you just had to learn how do I live amidst all of these things that are being decreed. We do have a certain kind of authority given to us by God that we can participate in our government to certain levels. One of the reasons you'll never hear us tell you exactly how to do that or exactly what to do is because it is way too complicated than that. Like it's way too complicated than for us to be able to paint with a broad brush like that. But I think a good start is for us to recognize that if we are operating in the way that we participate in our government, if we are operating in a way in our lens with which we vote or other ways we can participate, if our lens is, I want to do things that make my life more comfortable, gain me more power, gain me more wealth. If it's me focused, I've missed the point and it's the way of the dragon. And unfortunately, I think the church has bought into this. See, here's the thing is the church has never thrived under a government that is friendly to Christianity. That's not when you see the church explode in growth. It's actually in times of difficulty and suffering and persecution at different levels. And so whatever that looks like, whether it's persecution that's, you know, sociological or like, or economic, or also, you know, violent kind of persecution, whatever it is, that is when the church thrives because people see, wow, this isn't just a social club to you. It's not you just wanting to dictate morality to the people around you. So you feel more comfortable about your life. It's actually you embodying the way of Christ, even though it costs you something. 
And so people see that and it's real. What, what is people's main gripe about Christians? They're fake. They're hypocrites. They don't actually practice what they preach. They just want to tell me what to do and they want to put, pass laws over me, but they don't want to lift a finger themselves. And I think they're right in a lot of ways. I think the world has, has made somewhat accurate description about many, many believers in our country because this is the same, this is the same thing that Jesus brought against the Pharisees. He said, you guys know what the scriptures say but you are, you are whitewashed tombs. You are dead inside. There is no real life. You pile things on other people, but you will not lift a finger yourself. Our political involvement can so easily become about my comfort. And when that is the case, I have fallen into the worship of this beast and ultimately the worship of the devil. When Jesus came, he came as... Uh, as a suffering servant. And so when we follow him, we should know that our life is going to look similar. So in this, at this time, I'd like to invite those who are going to pass out communion to come forward. As they begin to pass, I want us to ask the question, okay, this is, and I hope you feel this with me, because here's the thing, is like, as we're preaching through Revelation, usually, Usually when we, you know, we've, we've been kind of preaching through books of the Bible. So usually what happens is you kind of know that you, when you get ready to preach, you're going to need like a chunk of time just to study and kind of get this stuff together and, and prepare. With Revelation, it's like you need a chunk and then plus another chunk. <laughs> because there's, there's so much in here, but I hope that you feel the tension that I've felt. Because as much as it'd be nice if it was just like, okay, let's read this to see what's going on in the future. What I have experienced as I've studied through the book of Revelation is Jesus pointing at me right here and now. And I, I, I hope you feel that with me. That it is much more comfortable to say, oh, what is going to happen in the future? And will these things be realities in the future? Absolutely. Could, and, and will they maybe even intensify? They absolutely could. Absolutely. And, and will they take different forms and shapes? And it, yes, yes. But for right now, I think the place we need to engage is what is Jesus saying to me? What is Jesus saying to me about the way that I've been engaging with the world that I live in? Am I doing this in a way that is actually following Jesus? So what do we do? What do I do in response to all the complicated mess of the world? How, do I, how am I supposed to engage? What am I even supposed to do? It could be easy for us as Christians to be like, well, let's just, and this is, the, this is the conclusion many people come to when they read Revelation. Well, let's just kind of circle up and head, you know, head for the hills and make a little commune and just like, we'll just wait for God to come back and fix it. Is that what we're supposed to do? No, Jesus calls that out in the churches in the beginning of the book. <laughs> Don't do that. That we're called to engage, but what is the way that we engage? If, we're, if, 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 the, if the dragon's way is off the table, then what's the way of the lamb? I think we already got the application in verse 11 of chapter 12. It says, they conquered him, Satan. How? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they did not love their lives to the point of death. See, first of all, we have no chance. We have no hope if not for the blood of Jesus. It is our only hope. And as we come to the table this morning, we're warned by the Apostle Paul that we should come 
in a worthy way, not in an unworthy way. Because if we come in an unworthy way, he says, that's why some, some of you have been sick. Some of you have died because you've come to the table in an unworthy way. It's a stern warning. And so how, our question this morning should be, how do I come to the table in a worthy way? We come through the blood of Jesus. We come with a lot of humility saying, Jesus, I bring nothing to the table. I don't come in a worthy way because I did a great job this last week reading my devotions or something. I come in a worthy way because I say, I can't get it right. There is no way I could get it right. I, the only reason I can have boldness before your throne is because I come through the blood of Jesus. So we conquer Satan by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony that we just stay consistent about speaking truth. Again, we don't cloister up and just pretend like evil doesn't exist. It absolutely does. We don't shrink back under the threat of persecution or violence or anything like that. But that we say, this is, this is what's true. This is who Jesus is. This is what he's done in my life. So I'm going to ask the band to come up. And as we move to communion, I want us to think about Jesus because it is in Jesus we perfectly see what does it look like to live in a very complicated time politically. I mean, think about living. He lived with a dictatorial Rome that was overseeing their, they weren't citizens of Rome in the same way that Roman born people were. They were just under the control of Rome and they kind of got to have their own little government sort of. And so everybody's just grabbing for pieces of power and control. And the Pharisees, you know, they, they kind of, they're like, oh, we want to kill Jesus. But we kind of have to ask Rome. And we, you, so you just see this complicated political environment that Jesus is in. And right from the beginning of his ministry, he goes to the wilderness and Satan comes and tempts him. And he says, hey, you could have the biggest earthly kingdom that anybody's ever known. I'll give you all these kingdoms of the earth. You can have them. That would, wouldn't that make such a huge difference? You would be able to tell everybody what to do. Nobody could stop you. If they tried, you could just squish them like a bug. You'd have every army on the earth would be at your command. And Jesus is like, that's not what I'm about. That's not my kingdom. My kingdom is an eternal, everlasting kingdom. That kind of kingdom will pass away. But my kingdom is eternal. He rejected it in the wilderness. He rejected it from the Pharisees. They were like, oh, hey man, if you play nice with us, we'll be like, yeah, you could be the Messiah. We don't care. That'd be great. But he wouldn't play their game. He wouldn't take power in that way. Even when he stood before Pilate, he said, hey, you know, the only reason you have control is because my father gave it to you. And in fact, even though Pilate was running a unfair illegal, immoral trial. Jesus was like, this is exactly what my father wants to happen. Do we have that kind of view when it comes to our political systems? He also rejected it when he was feeding the 5,000, well, more than 5,000. He gave them tons of food to eat. Everybody was full. And they're like, Jesus, do it again. They wanted to make him king. It said they wanted to take him by force and make him their king. 
She's like, man, they all, wouldn't that be so comfortable? Just have free food every single day. We wouldn't have to worry about anything anymore. This would be the best king ever. And Jesus is like, no, I'm not gonna be that kind of king. I wanna give you eternal life. And they just keep pushing him and pushing him. And finally he's like, you know what guys? The bread, if you want bread, you gotta eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's what I'll give. And so everybody leaves. He has a whole crowd of people there ready to support him and everybody leaves. And so he, even, even many of his disciples that had been following him, and he turns to his, he turns to his 12. He says, are you guys gonna leave too? Is that, is that not what you want either? And Peter, it's like one of his good moments in the gospels. He's like, where else are we gonna go? You're the only one with the words of eternal life. See, this is what Jesus wants to do. He wants to build an eternal kingdom. Not one that rises and falls based on the circumstances of life and who's in charge of what. He told his disciples, he's like, man, I'm going to prepare a place for you. It's gonna be like unlike anything you've ever experienced. But I think too often in the church, we have seen just like the 5,000, we've seen Jesus as just the bread guy. It's like, I like comfort Jesus. I like the Jesus that just, you know, he likes everything I like. I, I, I really like that about Jesus. He, he thinks all the same things as me. It's just great. I just think churches have abandoned the real Jesus. <laughs> so many Christians have turned away from the Jesus that says, no, if you want to follow me, you pick up your cross and follow me. They're like, no, 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 Jesus, just give us bread always. He said, the bread I'll give is my body and my blood. So we come to the table this morning and we want to just take a moment to reflect and let the Lord bring to mind anything, just anything that we need to confess to him. Because Jesus, we, we come to you today and we just come with, hopefully with humility, Lord just to recognize that we don't bring anything to this relationship. We just come needy. And we recognize that we so often get it wrong. And so would you just bring to mind anything that we need to confess to you? Maybe it's something directly related to what we've seen in your word this morning. Or it might be other things, Lord. Ways that we use, we've used our power, whether that's, you know, positions with people's lives, relationships, our finances, maybe our voting, just whatever it is, Lord. Ways that we've just tried to use it for our own personal gain. And then Jesus, we just lay that at your feet and we look at you. We even even though you were fully God, you didn't count being God as something to be used to your own advantage. But you made yourself nothing. You took the form of a servant. You humbled yourself all the way to death on a cross. And God, we, we just ask you to forgive us of our pride, of our desire to be God, our desire to make 
and control people, make people do what we want them to do by dragon-like methods. Jesus, we just throw ourselves at your mercy for the ways that we've failed to represent you, even though we are supposed to be your hands and feet, that we've failed to represent you accurately to the world. So we just corporately confess our sin before you. We thank you that it all has been hung on the cross, past, present, and future. And it is somewhat silly as it might feel, we just again receive that forgiveness knowing that we could never earn it. We can only receive what's freely given from you. So Jesus, thank you for that on the night that you were betrayed, you took bread and you broke it. You gave thanks and you said, this is my body that's broken for you. Let's take and eat it in remembrance of Jesus. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. In giving thanks, he said, this is my blood that institutes a new covenant between humans and God. Let's take it in remembrance of Jesus. And Jesus, even as we in a symbolic way, we take in those elements. Also, Jesus, we know that we have received your life, that we are participants in your death, in your resurrection. So Jesus, would your life come out of us that it's not, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Because God, I don't think the world needs to see Christians in charge in the way that the world thinks of it. We don't seek for earthly power, although you may give some of us different levels of authority. We want to steward that well. But we also understand that it's all given from you and anything that we try to take for ourselves, that is not your way, Jesus. We want to live and embody a sacrificial love for other people. And that only comes from you. So we just admit our need for you. And Jesus, we thank you for your everlasting kingdom, that you are the king on the throne and your rule will never end. You are the king of kings, the Lord of Lord, the president of presidents. That no one could ever thwart your plans, and even for us, although we may not be called to be necessarily martyred, it could happen, but we also, Lord, we, we could just, we might not die for you in that way, but we can live every day for you. We can die to ourselves every day for you and for the people around us sacrificially loving and giving of ourselves, not keeping for ourselves, but using anything that you've given us for the sake of other people. Jesus, that's not gonna come from us. We need it to come from you. So again, this morning, we just say, here's my life, Lord. 
Would you take it and use it in any way you see fit? Let's respond in worship.